I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the snack episode. <laughs> What's up? JJ is still suffering from a mild cold, so we're going to work with the voice that we have for today. I'm not dead yet. I'm getting better. Also, my cat is screaming in the background. Can y'all hear that? <laughs> Did you forget to feed that thing? No, I fed them. They just act <laughs> crazy. It's Saturday. Carl's at work. He's gone to work in weekends now. And so I'm here by myself and they know I'm here, but that I am locked in my closet. And so that <laughs> infuriates them. You're supposed Sorry. to be interacting with them. All the time, right? Constant cat mm-hmm. holding, except also yep. don't touch them at the same time. Yes. It's very easy. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, so today, today we're going to be bringing you another Did You Know episode. And I'm going to start it off. JJ. Yes. <laughs> it took a really long time. Okay. JJ, Sorry. did you know that monitoring the resting or sleeping respiratory rate in animals with heart disease can tip you off to problems? Before the patient gets very sick. I I did know that only because I have a heart patient wandering around here somewhere. And I checked that respiratory rate and she's sleeping quite often. Ben, I've even taught Ben how to do it. That's fantastic. It's a super easy way for clients to measure how the pet is doing at home. And I find that not everyone has heard of this. So... Mm-hmm. Like when I travel and go to different clinics and I'm seeing a congestive heart failure patient and I talk with them about what's the resting respiratory rate been. And then people are like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, "Okay, let's start from the top. So I wanted to go over this. I think, you know, if if you're working in a veterinary practice, especially general practice, making sure that all of the technicians and all the doctors know about the strategy is going to be really, really helpful. And I've I've been using it for a couple of years now in in managing my cardiac cases, and it has really, really helped prevent mild respiratory changes from progressing into fulminant, you know, dyspnea and things like that. It's avoided a lot of ER visits. So monitoring resting respiratory rate or sleeping respiratory rate, and those are two different things, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So This is a really sensitive technique, so it can detect changes in your pet's comfort level much faster than just having the owner observe whether the pet seems like they're in distress or not. It's also easy and completely free, which most owners are a huge fan of. Whenever I see a heart patient, I automatically prescribe for the owner to measure the respiratory rate pretty frequently at home and how frequently I do that sort of depends on what sorts of symptoms the patient is having and how bad their heart disease is and things like that. So, but you can use this for animals who are already in heart failure and you're trying to monitor their treatment. You can use it for animals who have a heart murmur and you're worried about heart failure developing for some reason. And you can use it for like example on say kitty cats that maybe you have an older cat who's also got a longstanding heart murmur And now you have to start like steroids for some reason. Maybe the cat has been diagnosed with IBD, you know, or something like that. And you're like, oh, I'm a little bit worried. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so for those type of cases where you're managing like multiple diseases at once and you really need to start that steroid, but you're like, well, there's a chance we could send the cat into heart failure. Having the owner monitor this at home is super helpful. So the owner is going to simply count the number of breaths that occur in one minute while the patient is either resting or asleep. Now, we also want to do things besides just say that statement to the owner because owners uh, do not know what they're doing. So I like to provide videos of how to do this. There are tons on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Make sure that owners know that inhalation and exhalation equals one breath because it's really common for people to double count. Mm-hmm. To make sure that the owner is not like rushing over and like putting their hands on the animal to measure because that's going to interfere with the measurement. So you want to set the owner up with like a comfy area, pet up with a comfy area. The pet needs to be resting or fully asleep, not panting, not sitting up looking around at something interesting or anything like that. The patient needs to be like truly resting. And I like the owner to passively monitor this from a distance, you know, like a five to 10 foot distance. You can watch it and see when the abdomen is moving, right? When they're breathing. (laughs) And then we want to count the times for newbie owners that are doing this for the first time. I have them actually set a timer for a minute and count every single breath for the full minute for people that can handle a little bit more complicated than we can get into math. So maybe they measure it for 30 seconds and multiply that by two or they measure it for 15 and multiply that by four. But I have found that a lot of people get confused about how long to measure it and what to multiply it by. (laughs) <laughs> so I just a lot of time have them start with doing it for the full minute and, um, you know, because it's just a minute like it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Just do it for the minute. <laughs> if you're ever getting really crazy results, have the owner do it for the full minute, because I have often found that there is a math error involved when there's something really crazy that doesn't fit with what you're seeing, you know, clinically with the patient. Like if they're seeing every single day it's 50 and on physical exam, the pet's like, da, 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 like tap dancing everywhere. And it's like, you know, respiratory rate of 23 in the room. It's like, this isn't 50 at home. Something is wrong with the way we're counting it. So then we have to dig into that. But most owners really like this. And I think it's also because it gives you something concrete to do if you're worried, right? Like if you're worried, you can do this and it's pretty sensitive. And you know, then if it's okay, Probably the patient is not in um, respiratory distress. And if it's not okay, then you know, like, I have proof that going to the ER is reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, how often are we going to do this? Well, uh, it might just depend. For my stable patients that I'm just wanting to monitor, I have the owner take it at least once a day for a full week. That's to develop a baseline of normal. And then I go off to like once a week. Uh, For my not stable patients, I might have them do it more than one time a day. It just depends on what's happening. And then I have owners kind of set up and look for a trend. So over time, say we've been managing a heart failure dog for a year and that owner knows when I measure it, it's usually between 18 and 22. Now, all of a sudden, it's 27 pretty consistently. The patient isn't in distress. This isn't an emergency, but I know I need to call the vet and get in. The next time they're open, right? Or Mm -hmm. now, now say it's 35, all of a sudden, that's an ER trip. Okay, so having them understand what the baseline is. And then, and I set these for each individual patient. 
what the don't go to the ER but make an appointment and the go to the ER right now numbers are is super helpful. And a lot of owners feel like they're like, now I'm in control of the situation. Now I I know I'm less confused and I know what's happening and I know what to do. So uh, resting respiratory rate versus sleeping respiratory rate, just like what it sounds. Resting is we're not fully asleep, but we're laying down and quiet. We want to make sure that we're in a normal temperature environment. It's not too hot, not too cold, nothing distracting, not fireworks time or anything crazy. Sleeping is like when the pet is fully asleep. Like for a cat, we need to make sure the cat's not feigning sleep. You know, if the cat is upside down, like rolled over, that is a <laughs> sleep cat. Okay. Um, you can measure that then. Now, the resting respiratory rate will be a smidge higher than the sleeping respiratory rate. And that's normal. So if you have the owner most of the time doing a sleeping heart rate, have them consistently do sleeping. If you're having them do resting and just just realize that if the pet is truly sleeping, it might be a little bit lower. And that's part of just kind of getting to know where this pet falls. Similarly, if you're measuring a respiratory uh, rate while the pet's resting, it's going to just, you know, you're getting a little bit higher values. Just make sure that you're not confusing a resting and a sleeping patient. Checking a resting respiratory rate is not diagnosing anything. So say you have a high respiratory rate resting or sleeping. That doesn't mean the pet has pulmonary edema. That means the pet has something going on that's making them have to breathe faster. And we got to figure out what that is. So that means we go to the vet. So it's not diagnostic. Now, maybe if you have a heart patient that's been on furosemide for a long time for their pulmonary edema, then we can kind of mostly assume that if the resting respiratory rate is up, that it means we need to increase the furosemide dose. But if that change does not pretty dramatically reduce it and and the patient gets stable, then still right to the vet Uh, because we need to make sure we don't have some other stuff going on because there are other things that can increase the resting respiratory rate. And um, there are a few references that I think would be great for everyone to read. I'll put those in the show notes and also in social media. So these are actual studies on sleeping and resting respiratory rates in dogs. I'm just going to read the titles really quickly, but look for um, those links in social media and on the um, episode notes. So the first study is sleeping and resting respiratory rates in healthy adult cats and cats with subclinical heart disease. And that was in the Journal of Feline Veterinary Medicine and Surgery, and that was published in 2013. The next one is Sleeping and Resting Respiratory Rates in Dogs with Subclinical Heart Disease, and that was published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association in 2013. And the last one that I used was Sleeping Respiratory Rates in Apparently Healthy Dogs, and that was published in Research in Veterinary Science in 2012. Sweet. And that is my presentation on resting and sleeping respiratory rate in dogs and cats. Yeah, I liked it. It was good. Thank you, JJ. <laughs> Mine's not quite as long, but sorry, I think it's kind of fun. No, no, I liked it. My second one will not be long. It won't be. My second one's <laughs> quick. My second one's going to be interesting. Okay. So I don't know if anybody else has seen any of these TikTok videos of people posting the the massive cicada geddon going on in the northeast but uh cicada was watching, armageddon yeah they're okay they're like they're everywhere uh oh lord they're coming Mm-mm. but uh when i was seeing that i was thinking 
I mean, cicadas are like the perfect kind of dog snack because they're <laughs> big, they're crunchy, and they make fun noises. They and do. And if you had that many, like, how do you keep your dog from eating them? Because, ew. That's oh, a lot. That's gross. Yeah. But yeah, you're so, right. <laughs> I did find a, a article about um, how those are, you know, one or two aren't bad, but... I mean, most dogs have very little self-control when it comes to binging on too many things that they love to eat. And if they eat too many, they can definitely get some problems. It can cause some nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and GI pain on a good day. Um, But those shells, the outer part of the cicada, they can actually collect and cause an obstruction. So not cool. Mm -hmm. And a couple ways that you can uh, hopefully teach your dog to not indulge on cicadas you can teach them the leave it command where you a lot of times you use it you know food or treats just kind of used in like a oh what's the word i'm looking for you have like your lower reward system and then your high reward system so say your dog you know it likes baby carrots and it likes green beans but it loves peanut butter it'll do anything for peanut butter so you can give your dog a carrot, tell them to leave it, and they do that, they get a, a higher reward of peanut butter. So you can that's the one way you can teach your dog to leave it command. I'm sure there's tons of them that you can find on YouTube. But teaching them that command. So if they go after a cicada, you can tell them to leave it. They leave it and then they get a reward for not eating the poor cicada. Or you can, you know, cheat and just say, hey, that cicada, I'm sure that looks really tasty to you, but I've got peanut butter over here. So, you know, come over here, please. And that might work short term, but if you've got a lot of them around, you might want to train them to do the leave it. Leave it is really handy anyway, because I have a dog that likes to eat spiders, which is not good for her at all. And we've tried teaching her that. She's not very good at it because there's not really any food group that's higher rewarding for her than another. All things are created equally delicious in her world. So that's been a challenge for us. But lo and behold, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what would happen if she found a cicada. That might be scary. So, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Are we we talking about, like, eating cicadas that are still, I mean, like, flying around and stuff? Yeah, alive. Or are you talking about eating the shells they leave behind they can be both but they like the they like the live ones oh but they are so upsetting and they make like a noise it's just (laughs) it's Mm. more like a noise but (laughs) have you okay so i am afraid of cicadas i'm not gonna lie and it is because when i was a kid um i was like 14 or 15 and it was like the great cicada hatching or Mm -hmm. whatever the fuck it's called and um we had these two Bradford pear trees uh, out by, like, the parking pad at our house, right? Mm-hmm. And they were just flipping full of cicadas, okay? Full. And when you would walk past the trees, they would, like, fly all around and, like, bump into mm-hmm. you and everything. And it was just, like, really upsetting. Yes. And so 
our trash cans were hanging out like right there. And so one night I had to go take the trash out. So I went to take the trash out and I was like, oh my God, I got to walk by these things. And they're like dive bomb me again. And so it happened and I was like, ah, stupid. Cicada. Like I'm done with this bullshit. <laughs> but then I got back inside and you had a friend. Yeah. Every once in a while I was hearing like a little <laughs> full <laughs> noise. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And like maybe feeling like maybe something's like running across me or something, and it was in my hair, JJ. Mm-hmm. It was stuck in my hair. Yeah, and I couldn't get it out. And I just after after that episode, never again with the cicadas. I <laughs> hate them because it was going like you know, mm. it was making this little weird chirpy, creepy ass robotic chirp noise. It sounds and like a little bit like the mad thing like yeah it's just in my hair like oh god oh man i hate them so much so if one of my animals tried to eat one i would just flip out like there'd be no taking it away or anything like that it'd be like just i'm not watching you know like i can't i'm just turning away i can't deal with this it's not recommended to try to take it away from them because they may swallow it whole. It's better to just <laughs> let it happen. If they get a hold of one, just let it happen. Oh, no. Gonna, it's no. not going to be pretty. Those things are big. Mm-hmm. Like, we had one They're get big. in the house. and There's there's actual YouTube video of this because, you know, I was videoing it because it got in the house and it got just slightly between the couch cushions. So if you touch the couch, you could hear the noise. And so Ben had these like massive gardening gloves on and a Dixie cup yeah, and a red solo cup, whatever you want to call it, and was trying to get it into the cup. And I'm standing a good distance away, like freaking out because I don't want this thing to come flying at me. And they they can, you know, if they hit you hard enough, you, you're going to feel it because they're huge. But we, we finally got it extracted and removed to the out of doors again but they're loud i mean i think it was like it really got loud when he put it in the cup because you could like you you touch the little thing it's like <laughs> it's like don't touch me <laughs> go away <laughs> oh my gosh thank goodness we got it out before the dogs got curious and tried to eat it is uh ugh, gross this is not cool so so what can we do about <laughs> this jj uh, you, if, if your dog already has the cicada in the face, just let it happen. Okay. Um, if they are going after one, it looks interesting. Try to divert their attention elsewhere, either with a leave it command or with their favorite toy or favorite snack, just something to distract them. If you have a giant cicada outbreak happening at your house, <laughs> uh, you might want to leash walk your dog and keep them away from them. Like I said, a few aren't terrible, but if they start going to town on cicadas, they can definitely cause some issues that you're not going to want to deal with. I mean, it's bad enough to see them eat it, but you don't want them horking those things back up again. That's no not, God. It's not going to be pretty. No. no, that's not good. No. No. And I did get uh, my information from a online article. Uh, called Family Pips and Cicadas Don't Always Mix Veterinary Tips to Keep Your Pet Safe from May 26, 2001. Fizzorg is the person who put the article out. And we'll link we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Okay, JJ. Mm-hmm. Did you know 
that you can have owners collect footage, video footage at home of the weird crap their pets are doing. That would be handy. It would be, right? So I told you my, my next thing was short. Okay, to make up for the super long one. I just want to point this out because um, I've started, I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner, but I've started really insisting that owners collect video footage of the weird stuff that they present the animal for. Because it's like, it never fails that the animal will absolutely not do the behavior when they're in the clinic, right? Like they Mm -hmm. will not, it will never happen at the clinic unless it's like a severe problem. So if you have um, owners bringing in a pet for lameness, have them record the patient walking at home before they come in. That way we can see what the patient's doing. Because when they get to the clinic, nine times out of ten, they're like, I'm fine. You don't need to leave <laughs> me for x-rays or anything. I buy Like, I'm super back to normal. So have them record the patient walking from the side, walking from the front and from the back, um, and bring that, right? Mm-hmm. Or, for example, if the patient is having what they think are seizures, right? So possible neurologic signs, but there's other differentials that it could be. If the owner is able to capture that on footage, have them capture it. Mm-hmm. If the patient is experiencing odd behavior, a favorite one would be like shaking. My tiny white dog is shaking, right? Like, mm-hmm. let's get a video of it. Let's see what type of shaking they're doing. Um, now that we have smartphones... Everyone is equipped with a video camera pretty much 24-7. It's it's crazy. But, like, we need to embrace that. And I think that getting everybody in the clinic on board, from the doctors to the technicians to the reception staff, and maybe even especially the reception staff, whoever's answering the phone calls when people are making these appointments, if we can go ahead and say, can you bring any footage of that weird thing that you're bringing the pet in for? Kind of like how we're like, uh, can you bring, please bring in a fecal sample with you, you know, so that we can mm-hmm. avoid the fecal loop situation. Mm-hmm. If we can avoid like uh, a super prolonged period of exam time trying to get the dog to do something that it's not going to do unless it's at home, like that can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And a couple times I've had owners think something like a seizure was happening, but when we videoed it, it ended up being syncopal episode. Mm-hmm. Or yep. the patient thinks or the owner thinks the patient is limping on its right front leg and it's not. It's a completely different leg than what they thought. But I wouldn't have mm-hmm. known that because the patient isn't limping when they come in. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there as a as a thing. You can just have them uh, just email the videos to the uh, to the clinic and then you can watch them before you even go into the exam. It, it would streamline things like a ton. Mm-hmm. So that is my idea. I like it. I like it too. Okay, JJ, what is your next did you know? So this next one, yeah, you and I both are probably going to need somebody to help get us off our soapbox. Okay. And I'm going to try to not go off the rails. Did you know that up until last year, dentistry was not a required, it was not required for veterinary students to uh, learn about dentistry other than an elective Yes, I super did know that. And it's very upsetting. Mm, But it's changing, right? Hopefully. It is. That is the the rainbow in all this. Um, The AVMA proposed adding dentistry to basically adding it as a requirement um, instead of an elective. So they had made the proposal around June. They met again in August. 
And they added two words to their requirements. It, basically, it says including surgery and dentistry now to, you know, things that the vet students have to learn. Here's where I get upset about things. Dentistry, I don't think is, it, it doesn't, it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild of veterinary medicine. And it's extremely important. Um, it does, you know, a, a good dental health does add to a pet's quality of life. And part of the reason that it hasn't really caught on with pet owners as much as it should have is I think it's being held back a lot by our fellow veterinary professionals. And a lot of it is probably because they weren't required to learn about it in school. Things such as, you know, things that are standards of care. And when I say standard of care, I kind of think of that as like a baseline. I'm like, this is what you should just automatically be doing for your patients. And there's tons, especially sadly in the South, there's tons of uh, places that operate below that standard of care. And standard of care should be um, veterinarians that's trained to read and trained to read radiographs actually does the radiographs, uh, intraoral radiographs with every dental cleaning and is trained to do extractions properly. Yeah, I'm probably going to ruffle feathers with that, but I don't care. It's just, it's, gosh, it's so annoying that that's just... Why why is that why is it even a question? Why why I don't get it. But uh, I'm trying really hard not to go down a uh, a very negative trail with this and I feel like I'm failing. I even put in my notes, don't go off the rails. <laughs> <sighs> well but uh yeah, so what I'll say is that I share your frustration. I'm very glad that some steps, even though they are super minor, have been taken to add dentistry to the curriculum. I think those sorts of steps are essential to, well, to teaching veterinarians how to perform dentistry correctly. And um, over the years, that will hopefully filter down. And, um, you know, maybe in 20 years, we won't be having this this type of hot button issue. But uh, you're right, you have introduced a hot button issue to the podcast, but that's okay. Uh, we <laughs> at the podcast confront hot button issues head on. We don't like to tap dance around them. So so, JJ, what I'll say is you mentioned standard of care. Now, people use that term in a lot of different ways. but I, So I just do want to say that legally, the standard of care is the level of care that you must meet to not be in violation of the law. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that is not the same as the level of care that is good to provide. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like. What you should do or would hope that other people do is not the same as standard of care. The standard of care is is the absolute minimum. It is the low bar. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge and ongoing debate in veterinary medicine about whether things like dental radiography should be considered the standard of care. Currently, in a strictly legal sense, the answer is that it is not. But I think that that is going to change eventually. Lord, so, so, yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, this this issue, you know, JJ and I uh, both share an opinion, which is that every single case that has dentistry needs full mouth radiographs. 
And the reason we have that opinion is because we've seen what happens when that's not the case. And it's not that the pet gets adequate care. I've seen a lot of nightmares and I've cleaned up a lot of messes that other vets got a pet into by not taking x-rays. So we share that opinion, but it's one that is born out of years of experience and understanding what happens when not taking x-rays goes wrong. Okay, but say you log on to a veterinary message board like VIN, for example. JJ, if you posted that on VIN, you know, you would make the front page. There would be a mm-hmm. 700 posts responses, you know, about people screaming at each other about what is and isn't the standard of care. So this is still a very, very much a hot button issue. Um, and um, what I'll say is that uh, I sincerely hope that dental radiography does become the standard of care. I think that starting in veterinary school with training in dentistry, I mean, that sounds so insane and basic uh, to Mm -hmm. say, but this, I mean, this is where we're at. The training veterinarians in dentistry is essential to them performing dentistry correctly. That doesn't sound like a groundbreaking statement, but it really is. And it's kind of sad that it is, but that's where we're at. When I went through veterinary school, I mean, I had zero dentistry training. We learned the formulas for the teeth, like for a test. And occasionally an animal would come through the veterinary hospital to have a prothy. Um, But as far as like learning the principles of extractions in the real world, with actually do, I mean, there's just, we didn't, okay? Like you might have to answer some multiple choice questions about how you would theoretically extract a tooth, but instead, like doing it in real life? No, <laughs> no, mm-hmm. it was not trained at all. There's not, uh, there are very few veterinary schools that even have a dentist on staff or even a dentist not on staff that comes and works with them and trains them. And I've talked to many veterinary dentists who have tried to play an active role in the training of veterinary students and the veterinary schools have said no thank you, which I find to be just ridiculous. So Mm -hmm. we will not spend a long time on this topic today. I would like to have a veterinary dentist on the podcast to chat about uh, dentistry. I would very much like that. As someone who has done a lot of intermediate and high-level dentistry in her career and who came from a background of knowing absolutely nothing and gradually taught myself how to be actually a very proficient dentist. You know, it, it means a lot to me. Um, and I really wish that more people would do a better job is how I'll say it. Right. But as mm-hmm. far as standard of care goes, dental radiographs are not the standard of care legally. I think that they should be. Please send your hate mail to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. That's fine. Uh, but I'm I'm super happy, though, that we have the wording added uh, that now we're going to teach dentistry. And I think that um, hopefully big changes are coming, but it's going to be very small steps at a time, I think. And it, um, you know, <laughs> it's probably going to take a generation, I think, for this, um, you know, t- for for true learning of, of skill in dentistry to catch on as a thing that's necessary and not just something that is ancillary or some sort of profit center in the practice. So I hope we do have a dentistry episode. Yeah. I will be there with my foam finger and (laughs) pom-pom ready to go. Yes. Uh, Thank you for um, helping bringing that back to the tracks because that's 
this is one topic that just really, really makes me angry. I know, me too. <laughs> and me too. it, what are you it really, it really is just like you said from experience. Because I mean, I've been on both sides of it, and that's why I get so fired up about it. Because I mean, I've been on the side of you don't know what you don't know, and yeah, when your eyes oh, man, get open to things. And you start seeing things, you're like, we would have never known that this was going on without looking at these radiographs. Yeah. And that's that's why I get so, I'm like, I don't, if, I mean, I'm just some podunk Alabama technician. If I can see this, why is it an issue? But, you know. It's a, I mean, it is com, it is a complex issue. It is multifaceted. I don't fully understand the motivations of, those in the profession that are extremely against the idea of doing radiographs, I, I don't get it. I mean, people used to be able to hold cost up as a concern. I mean, look, dental radiology, I mean, there's some expensive units out there, but man, the I mean, the cost is reasonable. Like you can get a Scanex. I mean, I, I won't, we won't get into pricing, mm-hmm. but the last time I priced out a Scanex, like the full shebang with a, you know, with a handheld, the Nomad? Yes, uh, like a Scanex with a Nomad. Thank you, JJ. I mean, it was not bad. It was something that I, like, just off the top of my head, I was like, I could pay that off in six months doing dentistry every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. easily, okay? Yep. But So we'll leave it at that. I'd love to plan a dentistry episode. We'll, we'll um, hop on that. And uh, if I could leave everybody with some things to remember, just uh, what I hope people take away from this topic is, is my advice, which is please take dental radiographs on every case. I guarantee you that even if you don't charge owners for taking dental radiographs on every case, the amount of pathology you'll find will more than make up for that. Most of the time, veterinarians, I think, hold on to fear of fear of increasing owner's cost as a excuse to not grow in the profession. And I think it's time that we step away from that in dentistry. So if you're going to be doing dentistry, you need to be doing full mouth radiographs on every case. I guarantee you that it will pay off and I guarantee you it will make you a better diagnostician and vet. If you're going to be doing dentistry, you need to be trained in how to do extractions appropriately. That doesn't mean that you had a, a one hour lecture about it one day in vet school or that old doc up the road sort of taught you how to yank a tooth out. What that means is going to actual dentistry CE and attending wet labs. Yes, that's expensive but you have to do it. You wouldn't attempt bone surgery without doing some wet labs and some significant training. Why would you ever try to remove a tooth without doing that? <laughs> that along that same lines is you wouldn't do bone surgery without doing radiographs, but you're absolutely right. And <sighs> if you think about it, people, you know, bone. bones, bone surgery. And I mean, the tooth is an extremely specialized bone. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And it happens to sit next to some incredibly important structures, such as the eyeball, and the sinus cavity, right? Mm-hmm. And in micro dogs, uh, sometimes the teeth actually extend past the margin of the jaw. So if you were trying to extract something down there and you don't take an x-ray and you break mm-hmm. the jaw, whose fault is that? You've That's all I'll say. That's right. Yeah. You have not helped. You have harmed. So, so we could talk about this all day. And JJ, you're absolutely right. It's something I get fired up about. You know, if you're doing dentistry and you're just knocking the pet out, scaling 
half-assed, not extracting teeth that need to go, I mean, you're not helping the patient. That's um, that's the bottom line. And I think people mm-hmm. think that they are. People think that just scaling the teeth is helping. But once you learn more about dentistry, you find out that scaling the teeth is not helping periodontal disease in severe cases, then, then it becomes, you know, this complex ethical issue. And anyway. Yes. So please, if you're going to do, um, if you're going to do dentistry, please take radiographs. Please take the time to read them. Please do an actual oral exam. Don't have technicians knock the pet out, scale the teeth and wake it up and you haven't even examined it. That's malpractice. Now that, now that mm-hmm. is not meeting the standard of care. If you guys are doing that, that is below the standard of care. You need to be examining every single patient that comes in. That's what the owners are paying you for. And if those things are not happening and you are a veterinarian seeing that happen, you're a technician seeing that happening, you need to make some noise uh, and say something about it because it's not um, ethical or legal. No. If the, if the pet's not being examined, that's not legal. <laughs> As I say, now that my blood pressure's up, I yeah. guess we're, uh, we're closing that topic for now. Right. <laughs> right. I think that's a good idea. But good job, AVMA. Um, we appreciate that. And hopefully... It'll put things on a better trajectory. I hope so. I hope so. I have I have high hopes for veterinary medicine, um, for the future of veterinary medicine, and I have high hopes for the future of veterinary dentistry. We just have to drag some people kicking and screaming to the finish line. Yep. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Before we sign off for today, we have listener mail that I'd like to read. Woo-hoo. Susanna emailed us. And she says, I wanted to let you guys know that I took a course for free on compassion fatigue, and it may be something that you would want to share with the audience. I'm looking into getting certified myself. I think she's maybe talking about a certified compassion fatigue professional. Mm -hmm. And then she's included a link, which we'll, we'll post. Thank you for sharing about the suicide training. I've registered for that myself. Thank you guys for all that you do. I look forward to listening every week. Love you guys, Susanna. (laughs) Well, that's very sweet. Thank you. I have not pulled that up and checked that out, but uh, we definitely will. And we'll post a link uh, as well in social media and in the show notes. So thank you, Susanna, for bringing that to our attention. Yes, thank you. So, JJ. Yes. It's time to talk about our happy things for the week. Well, my happy thing, this didn't happen this week. It's actually been a couple of weeks since JJ and I have met to record for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's kind of a double a double thing here. So I have recently started a master's degree program in counseling. So I am actually starting my master's training to become a licensed professional counselor, a therapist. <laughs> it was my first week of school and my cat was super sick and working full time. All of that stuff is happening all at once. And I was really stressed out because I had so much reading to do and I just couldn't figure it out. And I knew that uh, I had to get B. Arthur to see the specialist for an ultrasound. But it was like with my work and school schedule, there was like one single day that I could take her up there and it was Sunday. But I also needed to read three chapters in one class and six chapters in another class, all in the same 24 hour period. And I was freaking out. And Carl was at work and he's going to school full time, too. I mean, so I called JJ and I was like, JJ, I need help. 
And she was like, what you need, girl? And I was like, <laughs> I need you to drive me to Nashville with my cat. And she was like, okay. <laughs> and she just came to my house and picked me up and took me and my cat to the specialist. And I studied uh, the whole way in the car. I read to JJ all of my statistics class notes and everything like that. And I explained to her about skewness and kurtosis and everything for this statistics class that I'm taking uh, for, you know, my master's degree and everything like that. And so JJ came to my house, got me and my cat, took us to the specialist and then drove us home so that I could study on the way and still got my cat the care that she needed. And B. Arthur is doing fine. She um, has got some changes consistent with inflammatory bowel disease. And so we are starting steroids and she's on lots of steroids and now she's eating everything in sight again <laughs> which is her new normal or i guess it's her old normal she's back to normal by eating everything but so anyway jj went above and beyond on the friendship scale i had fun man i was learning about what was it you had to learn that something lepto something was high <laughs> and i yeah. remembered it <laughs> Yeah, so it's talking about in a standard, uh, so that you have a normal distribution, which is like a bell curve, but if the peak of the bell curve is higher, it's considered uh, lepto, uh, hang on, let me make sure I got this right, it's considered leptokurtosis, and then if it's low, if the peak is lower than normal, it's platykurtosis mm-hmm. or platykurtotic. And so I was trying to remember that lepto was high and platy was low. Yep. And JJ was like, like, if you got lepto, your kidney values are high and platypuses are flat looking. So that's exactly. low. <laughs> and I have not forgotten it since then. I will probably not share it with the rest of the class because I don't think that they're going to know what leptosclerosis <laughs> is. But anyway, <laughs> we came up with all sorts of mnemonic devices and it was super helpful. So I appreciate it. And school is going fine and the cat is doing fine. And I got through the week and everything is fine. Yeah. But I was super stressed out that day. Like <laughs> very. Because my cat not eating is like. I mean, this cat has never missed a meal willingly, and then she went three to four days in a row without eating, and I was freaking out. Anyway. Naughty kitty. So thank you, JJ. You're welcome. I mean, mine is kind of pretty much similar. Um, that whole weekend was like, because I haven't been able to really hang out or be around friends a whole lot, like going places. So mm-hmm. the Saturday before that, our uh, your friend Shia that we've had on the podcast. Yeah. Was uh she's like, "Hey, I need to go buy a couch. Would you be willing to go just, you know, go to the furniture store with me?" I was like, "Uh, sure." So, we ventured over to the furniture store. We had some lunch and I, I took funny pictures of her sitting in chairs and making the different. And there's one part that like the very top of the chair would move forward with a remote and it made her head go really far forward and look like a grandma. <laughs> So we had fun with that. And then uh, Sunday, I got to spend the whole day driving to Nashville. And I know. Sorry. Learning about Oh, we about had Bell Jim Curves. and Nick's. We went to the and barbecue restaurant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I had an eventful weekend of yeah. hanging out with friends and being helpful. I don't get to do that very often. So I had a lot of fun. Well, good. Uh, that makes me feel better. I super appreciate it. And And yeah. then the only other thing I'll add is that because I've been treating B. Arthur, you know, 
personally for several days and she was just not responding to anything. And I want really before I started the series, wanted to get an ultrasound just to see like what is happening in here and being a relief that, you know, <laughs> it's a long story. Anyway, so I needed the specialist and I have trouble making clinical decisions about my own patients because they're my own patients, you know, my own personal animals. When I got, we got back home, we had not been home but maybe 30 minutes and the ER veterinarian called me and was like, she just ate everything we gave her. <laughs> and I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? That she was like, so it. if you want to come get her and then just present on internal medicine like normal. And I was like, I, <laughs> I was like, are you fucking serious? Like this cat is not eaten in four days, four days, four days. And the first thing you offer her at the ER where it is super stressful, she's like, yeah, I'll see it all that. No problem. I was I was like, are you kidding me? This turkey right here. Anyway, I ended up leaving her because like I had just I was like, we just finished a four hour round trip and I cannot have JJ come back <laughs> to come get me. Also, my car was like messed up, too at that time and it was in the shop and so I was just like like no I'm sorry I have to leave her but yeah after all that after all that she just ate for the ER technician I was like the ER three you're fired <laughs> yeah she, get out of here out of here bad cat anyway uh, okay CMS <laughs> well if you have stories questions or submissions for our uh, advice column anything you'd like for us to read please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're uh, on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. You can find our 2021 listener poll at introvets.com slash survey. We'd love for everyone to fill it out. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.